So I'll be talking about challenging resuscitation cases today, and this is a collection of 10 cases of um, all cases that I've been involved in that I thought were had really interesting findings as you go along during the resuscitation. So we'll go through these and see how good you are with all this stuff. I worked down at Mission Hospital, all of you know that. We're down in Mission Bay in South Orange County. So we'll do some tough cases. You know, personally, they, when somebody comes in and they're already dead and they're doing CPR, you know, for the most part, you're not going to get those people resuscitated. If you do, they're going to be brain dead. The really challenging cases are the ones where they come in and they're still living. Your goal is to keep them living. You don't want them to die in front of you. Um, we'll talk about a rational approach to the code examination. So, you know, you have a person that's an extremist. You're not going to be checking every cranial nerve and doing this detailed physical exam, which you already know. I'll give you my code examination. You can do it in about 30 seconds. Always keep an open mind. You get stuck in a case and someone's going down the drain and you can't figure out what's going on, just go back to your ABCs and start over. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And probably the worst thing that you can do is bring closure and you know formulate a diagnosis on somebody and say, this is I've got pneumonia and I'm going to treat this. And then they turn out to have a pulmonary embolism as well. And you know you, you just got to keep an open mind. And even when you're treating a diagnosis that you think is obvious that you've made, things aren't going right, you know, ask yourself, what have I missed? So this is a nice uh, C-spine x-ray that we had last week. It's actually a reconstruction of the lateral on a CT scan. So what, what abnormalities do you see there, Randy? Looking for fractures. Perhaps it looks like there's some irregularity at the top. Uh, maybe uh, C1. So this is C2, right? This is C1 here and here. Sheared off. Right, so that's the dens with the odontoid. So C1 is a lifesaver, right? And then C2, that the odontoid goes right up through it. And that's an odontoid fracture with displacement posteriorly. And then there's also a traumatic disruption of the ligaments here between, that's two, three, four, five, right here, five, six, where that's pulled apart and physically separated. Whoops. Um, unfortunately, this guy was a high-level quadriplegic. So if you have your spinal cord injury, it, C3 or above, you lose your control of your diaphragm, and so you're going to have apnea pretty quick in, in the field. People that have high-level spinal cord injuries, about a third of them will be dead in the field when the paramedics arrive because of the apnea. Was it mechanism? Car accident. <clears throat> Got T-boned, and uh, the guy was here on vacation from India. He's a computer guy from over there at a computer conference here, and also family vacation, and just got T-boned. So the moribund exam, so this is a patient that's really an extremist. You can do a quick physical exam, you know, just like you get hammered in your head for your oral boards and get pimped every week in conference, your ABCs, um, D&E, and then IVO2 monitor. Quick neuro exam, and you do this for your oral boards, what's the best verbal and motor response? You can get a quick idea if the person can talk and if they can move all their extremities. Um, what are their eyes like? The pupil size and position. You know, for CNS catastrophes, you typically, if they're in the cortex, will look to the side of the pathology. So if you have a bleed in the left hemisphere, usually the eyes will be looking over to the left. We have CAT scans that will confirm that, but it just gives you a quick idea. If you've got someone who's got a fixed gaze and they're comatose, they've probably got a head bleed. Look at their, in the mouth. Look at their gums. And I, I, I have done this over the years, trying to guess what people's hemoglobins or hematocrits are going to be by looking at their gums. And you know, people that are really anemic, doesn't matter what their ethnicity is, 
you know, BC, if you get anemic, it's going to be hard to see it in your skin. But if you look at your no. gums, you're going to be able to spot it in a second. And we get fooled, and, and I've had cases in, like Hispanic women that come up with real bad vaginal bleeding or an ectopic, and you look at them, and they don't look that anemic, and then the lab calls says their hemoglobin's five. You're like, wow. You go back and look at their gums, and you know, when, they, when your gums look like your teeth, you have bad anemia, you need blood. Also, do you see any signs of coffee grounds around the mouth and, and gag reflex, which is not reliable, but um, if they're comatose and have no gag reflex, Cardiovascular exam, is there jugular venous distension? In particular, if you have a patient that's hypotensive, that's got JVD, then you gotta try and figure out why that is. And they have some, some, uh, some are they in congestive heart failure, do they have pericardial tamponade, et cetera, and they can hear heart tones. Now, usually in a crazy resuscitation, there's a lot of noise, heart tones, are, you're not gonna be able to hear them. Um, Pulmonary-wise, your breath sounds and what the tracheal position is, so if they've got a nail thorax, Abdominal exam, are they tender? Now, if someone's obtunded and they're not, or comatose, you're not going to be able to tell you if it hurts in the exam. But are they distended? Can you feel any pulse down mass? Is there anything to suggest an abdominal way of aneurysm? And then uh, a rectal exam for GI bleed. And then the extremities, which is, I think, something that gets neglected, is shunts. So it's a you know, dialysis patient. You can, those shunts are huge. You can feel them. But if you don't touch their arms, or at least take a look at them, and a lot of times the nurses will say, because they're putting in an IV, always to, Looks like a dialysis patient because there's a shunt here because it's so obvious. The lower extremities, they got a unilateral swollen leg for like a DVT, pulmonary embolism scenario. Is there any rashes? And uh, what are their pulses like? We had a uh, dissection case here. Who, who did that with me? Was that you, James? No, it was um, <clears throat> Christian. Yeah. You know, and the guy came in and we slapped on the ultrasound, and you can actually see a flap in the, you can see the intima dissected away in the abdominal aorta proximally. And then the next thing we did is do pulse exams, and it literally on one side, the pulse was almost absent, the other side, it was, you know, bounding pulse. And, you know, basically we had the diagnosis within 30 seconds of the guy being placed in the bed, or the nurse was like still putting in the IV. Exam adjuncts, AccuCheck and hemoglobin. In our place, we have ISTAT. And ISTAT is a chemistry panel. You get a Chem 7 and a, and a hemoglobin and a calcium, which is really nice. But you can do an AccuCheck and hemoglobin to get a lot of information. Also, um, let me back up. The other thing you can do is, uh, if you don't have a chemistry uh, analyzer like that, you can do arterial blood gas with electrolytes. Most, most of the blood gas machines nowadays do electrolyte analysis and give you a metacrit. That's another way to get a quick answer. Really, the major electrolytes you're looking for is you're looking at the potassium. You have someone that's extremist, they have renal failure, they have real high potassium, something that's easily treatable, and then also they have a severe anemia when they need a transfusion. How accurate are the ice stats when for the electrolytes? The ice stats for electrolytes are, are they're pretty good. They're in the, the, um, the one thing that you can get messed up on is because it's a whole blood analyzer, if there's a lot of hemolysis, you can get pseudohyperkalemia. So give you a high potassium reading. And with the potassium that is measuring is correct, but if there's a lot of hemolysis, um, that's why, it, because it's, you don't have to spin it down. You know, in the lab, when they spin the blood down for the chemistry analyzer, they can see the hemolysis and the change in the serum color. And so that's the one pitfall of those. They're very good. At the very extreme lab results, like you have somebody that's renal failure in the VU, it's 150. You know, the ice dad might, might say it's 164, and then the chemistry in the lab says 150. You know, it's so far off, it doesn't matter. It's not going to change anything that you do. The high potassiums, you know, I had one where the potassium was like 7.8, the lab came back at 7.6, but 
you know, you've already got your treatment well underway, so they're they're very they're very good. The nice thing is they're very quick. You get the results in 30 seconds. 12 lead EKG. Um, I checked about the arterial blood gas and then the ultrasound. Um, as you know, because you do ultrasound all the time here, and I'm very impressed with everybody's ultrasound skills here. The only downside to ultrasound that always gets me is that they're doing ultrasounds and everybody they don't need them and then they find things and then you wind up having more and more tests to work it up. You know, it's sort of the don't ask, don't tell. If they don't need an ultrasound, don't do it. <clears throat> but you're looking and you're looking in the abdomen and then your heart, your cardiac examination, your UTBs. So we'll do some we'll do the first case is this uh, plastic surgery case is a real case that, that uh, we ran the radio call on and isn't that horrible? That's a lady. It is a lady? I know, I look like that when I dress up, you know. But, no, that's, that's a lady with the lips and the whole thing. Yeah, it's crazy. And then this lady here, uh, Jocelyn Wildenstein, she wanted to look like a uh, tiger for a lion for her husband. Her husband liked lions, and uh, she had all the plastic surgery. And I said about 150 grand to get all that done to her face. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she got the whole, you know, the... Uh, you know you get too much money when you start doing stuff like that. Hey, glad you to make it today. Yeah, How's it going? Reminds me of Spicoli. You remember in yeah, Best Times Ridgemont High? So this lady, so here's a case. So a 30-year-old previously healthy woman who underwent eight hours of plastic surgery at the Surgery Center for Rejuvenation. And she had a facelift, breast augmentation, and large volume liposuction. And large volume liposuction is probably more than two liters of liposuction at one time. It's pretty, that's a lot of fat to take off, okay? So they finished her surgery. She's in the recovery room and has a ventricular fibrillation arrest. The patient is defibrillated by the anesthesia person that's there, uh, nurse anesthetist. Patient's reintubated, and they call 911. And the medics make base contact and they ask her advice. So what, Mike, what advice would you give the paramedics? They call and they give you this case and say the patient's got a pulse and a blood pressure now and she just had V-fib and they shocked it and she's <coughs> intubated. And amio, yeah. Yeah, paramedics have amio around. Okay, so amio around close to receiving. So here's the patient's vital signs. Uh, blood pressure 120 over 70, pulse 110, respiratory is eight, and that should be in bag. And uh, still uh, out of it from the anesthesia, glossocomoscale three, could be post-resuscitation, you know. Um, so you give the amiodarone. Now in this particular case, this is pre-amiodarone, so lidocaine was given. And they give 100 milligrams of lidocaine, 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. And then they had a lidocaine drip there at the surgery center, so that was started as well. And the patient was transported to the ER. Patient keeps having recurrent ventricular fibrillation and it does respond to defibrillation. She receives additional lidocaine. Gets a total of three milligrams per kilogram of lidocaine and then the drips at four milligrams a minute. Still continues to have recurrent V-fib. And patient arrives in the emergency department. Now what do you do? So let's say they got the lidocaine and all that. So you could do, would you still do the amiodarone? For sure. Give the amiodarone. I think I know yeah. So for some, if you've heard this case before, don't give the answer. But um, any thoughts on what this might be? PE. So you, so she had surgery. So you know, phantomism, pulmonary embolism, 
um, are things that are definitely there. Most fat emboli come from long bone fracture. If you usually don't see it with liposuction, but it is reported in the literature you get fat emboli after liposuction. So those are possibilities. Uh, what about, well, you probably wouldn't want to do TPI after having all that liposuction if they had an acute MI because you'd have pretty bad bleeding. You'd probably control it with like a mass suit or something, but uh, <laughs> you, wouldn't, you really wouldn't want to get TPI if you had an MI. So I'll give it to you that the 12 lead did not show an acute MI. How about from a, how about from like a drug standpoint or talk standpoint? So what do they, when they do liposuction, how, have you ever seen that or what do they do? So use a lot of lighter with epi injected. You inject that subcutaneously because there's a lot of bleeding that happens when you ran that rod in there and suck out all the fat. And so to control that bleeding, you use uh, lidocaine with epinephrine. So she's given 150 of the amiodarone, and it goes in asystole, <coughs> and after an hour, it's pronounced dead, unsuccessful resuscitation. So this is a 30-year-old who went in for like elective surgery. Three months later, they, an attorney gets involved, and they sue everybody, including the base physician um, who got dismissed from it. But uh, the cause of death at autopsy? Lidocaine toxicity. Oh, so normally a therapeutic lidocaine level is one to five, and her lidocaine level is 48. Um, you know, you could argue that she got a bunch of lidocaine intravenously, um, but they actually did uh, intraocular levels of lidocaine. So the coroners a lot of times will use ocular fluid or other bodily fluids. It takes a while for things to diffuse into to do drug levels, and so they looked at serum level and looked at ocular level. And, Serum level was much higher, and so they said, okay, yeah, that's fine because you gave some lidocaine. But so one of the criticisms was is that the patient got lidocaine when they had lidocaine toxicity, which is probably not what you want to do. Now, it's probably the last thing you would ever think of, but there's a lot of people that get liposuction, they still use lidocaine with epinephrine when they're doing these cases, and if it's a large volume liposuction, they've got to use a lot of lidocaine to do that. <coughs> so treatment of lidocaine toxicity, lidocaine is a sodium channel blocker, right? Mm -hmm. You give them a bunch of sodium to try and override it. So you basically give them sodium bicarb to buy time until the body metabolizes it. Lots of fluids. And this is one of those scenarios where you're supposed to be doing more prolonged resuscitation, you know, especially in a younger person. So, so give them a lot of bicarb and give them fluids. Now, if they stay in asystole, you know, that's a tough one. You're probably not going to survive, but that would be your treatment. Would you try intralipid? Do intralipid? Yeah. Yeah, that would work. Yeah, this was like five years ago. This was before they even before the paramedics had any idea. Right, and it's one of those things that you really have to. First of all, you'd have to even think of that. So if you ever have one of these cases, you're definitely going to be thinking about that. Um, and then you got to try and determine how much they got. You know, if they had large volume liposuction, chance again lidocaine toxicity, you're going to be high. So that's a really good thought, Mike. Yeah, you have a question. Same thing. All right, so let's move on to the next case. Any other questions about that? So a 35-year-old man comes in with facial numbness, dizziness, and neck pain for 24 hours. He has no history of any trauma, no history of any neck manipulation or chiropractic adjustments. He was seen the day before in an urgent care by a um, physician's assistant who diagnosed him with vertigo. He had a prescription for Anavert. Comes into the ER now, 
with right sided weakness. This is one hour's duration, so started, told his wife, she got him dressed, put him in the car, and drove him down to the emergency department. So he said one hour of right sided weakness, left facial droop, mild speech problems, and I stand. Some kind of CNS problem, right? Some kind of a stroke. Do you think this is anterior circulation or posterior circulation stroke? Posterior circulation stroke would be more likely. You tend to get vertigo and nystagmus or visual disturbances. Um, the other clue is is the, the mixed presentation. You know, when you have a stroke weakness on one side and then you have a facial droop on the opposite side, it's usually posterior circulation, anterior circulation, you'll see on the same side. So, stroke team's activated, do a code stroke, get the neurologist there, but you know, they like take a lot of time and you're having them draw pictures and stuff and you gotta like make decisions and don't pull the trigger, right? <laughs> so CT scan is done and here's the non-contrast head CT right there. <clears throat> See anything there that bothers you? It's very typically lost good. What's that? Yeah, so the scan is normal. There's nothing. There's no bleed. This is uh, uh, calcifications here. It's not hemorrhage. So first of all, would this be a candidate? Would this person be a candidate for thrombolysis? Okay. Well, he had the dizziness and had some symptoms for 24 hours, but the weakness started in just an hour ago. So did he have? So you know, one of the things that comes with like some people have TIAs. They have weakness that goes away yesterday, and then, then you know now they've got an acute stroke. So really, the clock starts ticking from when their paralysis started. And you have a good history, and the guy's a good historian, the wife's a good historian. He says, you know, everything started one hour ago. This is cerebellum looked like on the CAT scan. Cerebellum looked okay on the CAT scan. Good thought. Yeah, but this guy is so young, you know, that you would think that it might this might not be due to coronary artery disease or some kind of plaque or something like that. Or so you would have to consider like a dissection of some of these vessels just because of its age. And that's a really good thought. So that's a really good thought. Vertebral artery dissection is an excellent thought. So what are the what are the contraindications to thrombolytic therapy? So we'll, let's just buzz through these because this is something you need to have a checklist for wherever you're working um, to look at it when you before you administer the medication. Make sure they don't have something that's contraindication. So. There's kind of two cut points on time three, and now we have four and a half hours, and I'll go through both those. So generally speaking, it, you're, you're, you're excluded if you have stroke symptoms greater than three hours, with a couple of exceptions, which I'll go over at the end. Uh, our place we use, if your NIH stroke score is less than four, we do not do thrombolytic therapy. It's a minor stroke. Um, there's some controversy about this, about whether or not we should, you know, someone comes in and they have a mild expressive aphasia and they have no motor deficits, is that someone you should give thrombolytic therapy to? You, that person has brain hemorrhage and winds up having a devastating outcome versus having a mild speech impediment. You know, it's kind of so we made an institutional decision and that what we would stick with. Um, if there's any abnormalities on the CAT scan, so if you have a hemorrhage, is the most obvious one. You want to get thrombotic therapy. There's a mass. You see edema, or you see signs of a stroke because a stroke takes longer than four and a half hours to show up on a CAT scan. So if you can see an area of a new stroke. Now sometimes someone's already had a stroke and you don't know if this is new or old. Um, and so that's where you gotta get some history from the family or the patient if they've had a previous stroke. 
there's that and all the other CAT scans you want to think long and hard before you get TPA. They had any active internal bleeding within the last 21 days. Any bleeding diathesis, which include platelet count under 100,000, INR greater than 1.7, or proton greater than 15 seconds, or if they're on low molecular weight heparin. You know, some people are on Lovinox as an outpatient, et cetera. So if you had a stroke um, while you're on Lovinox or you're on Coumadin, and you're on a clinical people who have that Right. Internally, at our place, there we would anybody that's on Coumadin um, is if they're a candidate for any kind of treatment, they'll get intraarterial therapy, which I'll talk about in a minute. We don't do very much systemic TPA replacement. Most everybody gets intraarterial thrombolysis. They go to the interventional radiology suite and put a catheter and either try and pull out the clot. So if they're on Coumadin and their INA is high, they use the, they've got a little corkscrew thing called a mercy retriever to screw right into the clot and just pull it out. Any previous uh, intracranial or spinal surgery within the last 14 days, if they have a low or high glucose, you're not supposed to do it uh, because it could be a stroke mimic with the blood sugars. The, um, the thing that's hard is you have a diabetic that has a stroke and their blood sugar's low. If you give them dextrose and the sugar comes up and they never come back around, you, know, we still, you may still activate your stroke team and go through all that motion, but these are listed contraindications. Um, uncontrolled blood pressure because the hemorrhage rate is higher, and then previous history of intracranial hemorrhage and a seizure at the onset of a stroke. So people that have seizures at the onset of a stroke, it's either a massive stroke, which is going to be a much higher rate of hemorrhage, or it's someone that's got a hemorrhage and then the brain is irritated. So that was the thought behind the seizure. What's that? Or a tumor or a mass or yeah, something bad that would not respond well to thrombotic therapy. Um, so the, just this last year, the time window is extended to four and a half hours, except if you're over 80, you don't fall into that time window. If you're on Coumadin or Lovinox at all, doesn't matter what your INR is, you're excluded if you're more than three hours of presentation. If your NIH stroke score is greater than 25, which is a devastating stroke. If you've had prior stroke and diabetic both together, it would be contraindicated with that. So this is the kind of thing where you just need a checklist to go through and look at. You're not going to remember all this stuff, and you shouldn't try and remember because you'll forget something if you do, even if you're taking care of stroke patients every day. So here is, <clears throat> so with our stroke thing, we do a CT followed by CT angiography. And the CT angiography includes the brain and the neck all the way to the arch of the aorta to look for aortic dissections, carotid dissections, vertebral artery dissections. So if you look here, these are normal left and right vertebral arteries. You can see them light up there. The then on the right, on our guy, look at this. The vertebral artery doesn't light up. It's occluded, whereas you see the contrast on the other side there in the frame. So here is the um, MR angio on the guy's neck. So you see a normal left vert, and then on the right side, called the yin-yang sign. It's like the yin-yang, uh, I mean, you know, the circle with it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> now, if you can see some contrast in there, you know that this dissection has got a partial occlusion. The partial occlusions are usually the ones that are associated with the stroke because clots are in there and those clots are flicking off and showering up to the brain, landing in multiple spots. 
Whereas if you get a complete occlusion of the vertebral artery, it usually does not result in a stroke. Um, I had a guy about nine months ago who was in a bicycle accident, went over the handlebars, had a, several um, transverse process fractures in a C-spine, and had a complete occlusion of his vertebral artery on one side, but he was like 30 years old, and he had no neurological symptoms and never developed any at all. And um, he just had a complete occlusion, but he had other good collateral circulation and managed to do just fine. So the mechanism of these vertebral artery dissections, so the vast majority of them are spontaneous. So do they have some connective tissue disorder? For whatever reason, they get a, a spontaneous dissection. 31% are associated with cervical spine manipulation, so you're going to get a chiropractic adjustment in your neck. And this is one of the major sources of litigation for chiropractors is you give someone a vert dissection and then they have a stroke and you know you can imagine that you're going to have a bad outcome that's going to be devastating and expensive. 16% are considered from trivial trauma and 10% are from major trauma. So trauma makes up about 25% of them, some sort of trauma. So arterial circulation, the vertebral arteries, they arise from the subclavian arteries bilaterally. The pimp, the pimp question is C7 does not have a foramen where the artery goes through, it starts at C6, and then it goes up posteriorly, and then the arteries come together back here, so you have the vertebral arteries coming up here, and then they merge into the basilar artery, and then this gets the backside of the circle of Willis. So you get circulation coming up the carotid, so it's the circle and the anterior circulation, you get the posterior circulation here. Back here, when this merges, you get branches, the first branches that come off the cerebellum, so cerebellum findings are very common. That gives you, you know, when your cerebellum's involved, that's when you start seeing the nystagmus and the ataxia and those kind of things. Um, the pathophysiology of dissection, remember that the vessel's got three layers, like a sheet of plywood with the intima tears. If it completely occludes, it just clots off and it cuts off the blood supply, but if, it, if it's not a complete occlusion, you get clots and you shower up to the brain and usually land in the posterior part of the head. Um, <clears throat> kind of covered that already. So the effects of a complete occlusion in an older person that doesn't have good collateral circulation, that can be devastating. You start getting brain stem, brain stem ischemia, see Shane Stokes breathing, you know, or apnea. I mean, it can be really devastating. A person can code. Whereas a young person, they do well. Partial occlusions, you can have embolic strokes. So treatment of vertebral dissections. There's kind of, if you look at the literature, there's kind of two, two schools of thought. One is just to do antiplatelet therapy only, the aspirin or Agronox or uh, Plavix. And then the kind of the traditional <coughs> teaching has been to put them on heparin. Uh, if they've got concomitant strokes with a lot of the neurologists, we'll just put them on a heparin drip and not give a bolus of heparin. We'll just put them on a weight-based drip and that's it. And then in terms of acute stroke treatment, so now we've diagnosed a vertebral dissection in this guy. Can you give someone thromboidic therapy that's done a dissection? Now you surely wouldn't do it in an aortic dissection, right? You want to have an aortic dissection that took out one of the carotids and gave an acute stroke, you're not giving thromboidic therapy. There's really not a clear answer. I think the, the safest answer is no, that you should not give thromboidic therapy because you run a risk if they've got a complete occlusion of opening that up and then showering. Um, but it's really, I don't know what the right answer is. So you always angio <coughs> everyone who comes in with stroke symptoms? If we do a code stroke, uh -huh. you get a CT, they get an ISTAT when they come in, so we have their creatinine, and as long as their creatinine's okay, we'll follow that with CT angiography. And then they get a 
with the CT angiography to get a perfusion and diffusion scan so we can look for mismatches to see if the brain's salvageable or not. By CT? This through CT, a diffusion and perfusion scan. And all that comes back in about 20 minutes from the time that they get the scanner until you have the actual images done where the radiologist can read it. It's interesting that, you know, the traditional teaching is that you give TPA within three hours, you know, get that three hour window. But our experience has been in the, in the elderly patients that have a big stroke, have a big MCA stroke, a lot of them, the stroke is completed on the perfusion and diffusion scans. We know that tissue is dead and non, it's not coming back. And they can be an hour or two into their stroke and already have that because they just don't have the collateral circulation. Whereas younger people, you can buy a lot more time and have a further time window. So here's uh, an MRI, so you can see the carotids, and there's the vert on one side and the other side. There's just kind of a wisp of contrast making it pass there, and the vert on the right. <coughs> so for vertebral and basilar insufficiency, so he was having literally like TIAs in the posterior circulation uh, prior to developing his acute stroke. Dizziness, drop attacks, or syncope, diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia. These are all kind of cranial nerves and cerebellar findings. Ataxia, then nausea, numbness, and nystagmus. And then here's some MRs of his brain. So you can see he's got a cerebellar stroke there on the right, and that's where the vert was out there. And he also had a homonymous hemianopsia, so part of the visual cortex was taken out back here on the left side. And then this is a scan, an interval scan done a few days later. The, our, verts, our vert dissections that we get, they get put on heparin and their protocols to get a CT scan every day until they leave the hospital. So every day they get a repeat scan. Because you're always worried about hemorrhage. When you've got a stroke patient that's on heparin. <clears throat> so you can see the edema here. here. So when you, get a, you have someone that comes in with a stroke and you see edema or changes like this, you don't want to give them TPA because you already know that it's been going on dead, so your chance of having a hemorrhage goes way up. All right, so any other questions about vertebral dissections? <clears throat> Neck pain, dizziness, vertigo. What's scary is some of these people look like the classic vertigo where they come in and say, I'm severely dizzy and I have nystagmus, but if you do a neuro exam on them, many times they have cerebellar findings, you know, or they'll have, actually do their visual fields, will find a visual field cut or homonymous hemianopsia if they clots up to their visual cortex. For the complete conclusion, what would you have to treat it with monitoring and conservative therapy? What's, what, even if you have a complete occlusion, they would still get anticoagulation okay. or anticoagulation okay. therapy. Yeah. Was, was that a bad outcome for the doctor or just for him? This case? Uh, you know, I don't know because it's just happened. This case was in the last month. Oh. So I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I know the family was really upset, but you know, when you ask them well, what kind of symptoms the person was having the day before, he didn't have really. He had dizziness, but he didn't really have any. You know, he was able to walk in and you know function and do everything normally, so he wasn't having any hard neuro deficits at the time. So it's kind of hard to fault him. How often do they have neck pain? Most people with vertebral artery dissections will have neck pain. They'll complain of pain in the neck. So that's a that's a common. All right, so case number three. So. Oh my God. No, I know, and that's, that's what's hard is, you know, you talk to an old person and they say, oh, my neck hurts, and I can't see, and I have nystagmus, and they're vomiting, and, you know, they've, they've got all these things, and, you know, just, um, 
keep that in the back of your head. And you know, that, that's where your documentation yeah. is good to do. You got to do a neuro exam. You got to check their people that come with vertigo. You got to do visual fields. And you got to check their cerebellum as part of their neuro exam. I mean, you don't have to be giving them coffee grounds to smell all that, but you know, focus on the area where the problem is. All right, case number three. So, sick kid, four-week-old boy comes in with 20 episodes of vomiting and diarrhea. It's kind of your slam dunk admission, right? Little baby is brought up with vomiting and diarrhea. Kid's lethargic and unresponsive, and truly lethargic. So it's okay to chart that. Um, you know, we want to stay away from that word on kids that are not lethargic because it makes us do a big workup. No history of any fevers. Kid was born a term without complications. Um, we got younger now, he's three he weeks old. So. <laughs> <laughs> we have a time machine in our hand. Here's the vital signs heart rate's 180, blood pressure's 60 over 32. So, is that hypotensive for a four week old or a three week old? Yes. Uh, respiratory rate's 56, temps at 98.6, that's 98%. The, um, the basically the blood pressure should be 70 plus. Right. 70 is like the minimum in, yeah. in kids. At least 70. Um, so the kid weighs 3 kilograms. Birth weight was 4. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty significant weight loss there. Pale and mottled skin. Um, kid's so out of it. doesn't even cry when the IV's put in. Sunken fondale. Sunken eye. Sunken, sunken fondale. So this kid is very, very dehydrated. <clears throat> other than the severe dehydration and being unresponsive, there's really other no major physical exam findings on examination. Um, so the kid gets an IV and an IO lines put in until the nurses get a, a peripheral IV secured. And so what's the, what, how much fluid do you give the kid? What's your fluid boluses? 20 per kilo. Then how many times do you keep repeating that before you move on to other things? Two or three. So after 60, so this kid weighs three kilos, so, so 20 times three is 60 cc's of fluid. He gets three fluid challenges like that, no, no change in the blood pressure. Here's the labs, so blood sugar is 28. Most critically ill children have a low blood sugar. Um, we have a couple of our docs, they have a sick kid, they'll just give them dextrose empirically, and won't even, even do an acne check. You'd probably find you do an AccuCheck, you know, you know, chemistries and everything. But most kids that are really sick and out of it and septic or whatever, small babies, they don't have glycogen reserves and they burn up their glucose, and most of them have low blood sugar. So, what do you think about those electrolytes? Sodium 128, potassium 7.1, bicarbs 10, creatinine's 1, the calcium 6.9. So, probably not renal failure because the creatinine's 1, right? One is high for a little kid. You know, it's not like the numbers we would see like an adult that's in the renal failure, but yeah, that's high. You know, most little babies when you do their cranium, like 0.2 or 0.4 or something like that. H&H um, &H is okay for a kid that age. Chest x-ray is normal. Uh, kids has an LP done, it was normal. So how much glucose should we give this kid? So the nurse says, doctor, I got the dextrose. How much would you like me to give? Should I give AMPA D50? No. Okay. No? So this is like a good, you know, Braslo tape is like always great because your friend, you know, know where that is in your Pete's crash car. You can always look everything up. The glucose is a gram per kilo. Now, the thing is that you have to figure out is how to, how much is a gram when you're looking at your, your glucose that you have 
you know, you got D10 and D25 and D50. Little kids, you don't want to give D50. If you read the package insert or you read the PDR by D50, it says that it should be given through a central line or a proximal large bore IV. It says do not give it in IVs in the hand because you'll sclerose the veins. Now we do it all the time when there's puts an IV in the hand and give it in for D50. But in little babies that have little tiny veins, it's too concentrated, it's, there's too much uh, osmotic load there, so you want to give a more dilute form, so D10 or D25. So you give them, so the kid weighs three kilos, so you get three grams of dextrose. How much dextrose is in an amp at D50? Anybody? 25 grams. Oh, you're right. So when you get older kids, let's say you get like a five-year-old that needs, you get a five-year-old that weighs 20 kilos, and then you need, let's say a four-year-old that weighs 16 kilos, you need to give 16 grams of dextrose. One of the things you can do is if you use D10, um, you've got to give like five amps of it. So if you do D50, you can squirt out part of the D50 and just draw saline into it, so you dilute it down. So you can just put it in the IV port. So you squirt out the nine grams. So you're going to give 16 grams of uh, dextrose. You basically squirt, you know, you got to figure it out, but get rid of like uh, 20 of the 50 cc's. And then just draw saline in there. You dilute it down, and then you can just give that. And uh, that's a quick and easy way to do it if you don't have the pediatric doses for glucose. So you probably give this kid antibiotics, do blood cultures, um, still a neonate, so you want to give spectrum coverage, like anthocyclotenexine, for example. So the kid's starting on dopamine. He's at 20 mics per kilo per minute and is still hypotensive and the blood pressure does not come up. <coughs> Steroids. So you answered it. So adrenal plysis. So congenital adrenal hyperplasia. This is, you see it like three to four weeks of age. So kids are born and they have cortisol in their system from mom that stays in their system for the first few weeks of life. And then they don't make any more cortisol, and they get into this adrenal crisis. It's usually in an enzymatic defect in cortisol synthesis. Um, you can affect aldosterone production, which gets salt wasting. That's why your sodium gets low and your potassium gets high. Um, so fluids, hydrocortisone, and dextrose. And then females can have ambiguous genitalia if the sex depends on where it is in the enzymatic pathway. But you can have uh, ambiguous genitalia. So the steroid thing is always something to get, you know, you got someone you're resuscitating and you're throwing the whole kitchen sink at them and the barn door and everything else and their blood pressure's not coming up. That's a really good call to throw out steroids. It's easy to forget about that. And, and, uh, all right, so case number four. How, how fast is that? The steroids, it's almost immediate. It's amazing. You have adrenaline sufficiency within a couple of minutes, the pressure comes up and you're, you start titrating down their pressures and uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I think hydrocortisone is Q6 or Q8, so you're probably not going to have to give another dose in the air. You don't need to put them on a drip or anything. Exactly. Feeds <laughs> ICU and get them on their way. Case number four, I've fallen and I can't get up, right? We see this all the time. So, 73 year old from the Golden Ears sniff. It's found on the floor with respiratory distress. This is a real case. She had been on daily IM rocephin from bronchitis, so she had like a cold and a cough and stuff, and they had her on rocephin there. And um, she has a history of dementia and a history of hip fractures. These are her meds, right? Colase, magnesia, Synthroid, and Haldol. 
and no further history is available. The patient's got dementia, so she can't give you any historical information. And her code status is full code. Right. Of course, you know. You gotta take the diaper off to put in the femoral line and then intubate them, right? <laughs> so here's your vital signs. So the temps 1016, pulse 120, reps are 60. Uh, blood pressure is 120 over 70. A SAT is 88% on non-rhythm medicine. So not looking so good there. Unresponsive, neck veins are flat. Got, you know, sounds like a freight train in her chest. Extremities are cool and diaphoretic. So now what, right? Foley, Levaquin, call the doctor to admit him. So this patient has labs, blood culture's done. The uh, patient continues to have progressively worsening respiratory stress and needs to be intubated. So you call respiratory therapy and the nurse gets you your RSI kit and says, what, what medications do you like to use, doctor? So she's intubated uh, with 20 milligrams of, using a 20, 20 milligrams of tolerance and 100 milligrams of succinylcholine. Easy intubation after the dentures are taken out. 10 minutes later, heart rate's 160. Blood pressure 70 over 40, temperature is 108.4. The nurse says, Doctor, I think she needs more Tylenol. I think she needs more dandruline. Extremities become very rigid. What the hell happened? So you called it. Some malignant hyperthermia. So this is something that can happen with succinylcholine. It is a triggering agent that can trigger malignant hyperthermia. It's usually inhalational anesthetic agents, but sucks is also a triggering agent for MH. Um, probably the best way to think about this is think, you know, MH is like the person that's on meth that has rhabdo that's going crazy. It's a hypermetabolic syndrome, and the treatment is basically the same as someone that's on meth, except to use dantrolene as well, which we'll talk about in a minute. So triggering agents are succinylcholine and volatile anesthetic agents. The sarcoplasmic reticulum in the muscle stores calcium, and uh, the triggering agents cause these calcium channels to open up. We have a massive influx of calcium in the skeletal muscle, and in turn, you get severe um, hyperactive muscles, so basically contracting uncontrollably. You like the fasciculations you see when you get succinylcholine, but that continues to go on internally, even though the muscles are not actually twitching in front of you, and it just makes you just heat up. It's the same as someone that's on death that's getting chased by the police down the street. <laughs> Consume massive amounts of ATP and you get a metabolic acidosis and hyperthermia and rhabdo, et cetera. The treatment, aggressive cooling measures, you know, if they're on in, if they're in the OR and they're getting the inhalation agents, you gotta stop those. Um, aggressive fluid resuscitation to maintain urine output, treatment of rhabdo, which is fluids and bicarb. Um, and then dantrolene. Um, dantrolene blocks that that influx of calcium that happens and causes this. <clears throat> There's actually a MH hotline that you can call that's very similar to like the Diver Alert Network if you have a case. And you can call any poison center and they'll put you in touch with it. But it's something to remember because if you ever, first of all, it's going to be hard to pick up the case unless you're thinking about it, right? And if you do diagnose it, you're going to for sure have to get out a book somewhere and figure out what to do. With the MH hotline, you get an expert on the phone within a couple of minutes and they can guide you through the process of what to do. Our Yeah, we have one in Mission too. They actually have like a little toolbox, and it's got a, it's got a bunch of stuff in there, and it, it's got like a, the the MH 
I don't want to call it the poison center, but the, the malignant hyperthermia <laughs> hotline actually has like a little pocket card that's in there that you can look at that kind of gives you the quick rundown on things to do. But the MH kit has got like bicarb, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if there's IV fluids, but there's dantrolene in there. And, um, the patient you mentioned had a, it was like a temporary old patient before the You know, it turned out after the fact that the patient had a history of having malignant hyperthermia to an inhalation agent in the past, but we didn't have that history when she came in. So, so we talked about the offending agents, things that are okay to use are non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade agents. So vecuronium, zimuron, pavilon, uh, barbiturates are okay, benzos are okay. I tried to look up atomidate, whether it's considered to be a triggering agent or not. I didn't find anything that it is, so it's probably okay, but these uh, meds are specifically in... Uh, is, it, is there an indication it. for <coughs> benzos or after giving VEC as a replacement for the succinylcholine to paralyze them in a different way to prevent the continuing rigidity? Well, what happens is you get rigid for a while, but then it's just like the depolarization that happens with succinylcholine, you know, when you give succinylcholine, you overwhelm the neuromuscular junction and the muscles contract and just fatigue and become flaccid. And the same thing happens. They have the rigidity for a while, but then eventually they go, they go loose. It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think so. Okay. So that's malignant hyperthermia. Pretty rare, but if it happens, it's one of those things you got to pick it up right away because if you don't, they're toast. Case five, my baby drank poison. So a two and a half year old male, rushed to the emergency department after found drinking some poison at home. The father took the label off the bottle and lost it on the way to the hospital. And there's some forms, there's a sick kid in bed one, and you go over there to see him. The child smells like chemicals, so you know he drank something bad, you know, some kind of either petrochemical or insecticide. <clears throat> father had induced vomiting. Kids lethargic, diaphoretic with grunting respirations. There's the vital signs. Pulse is 78. Blood pressure is 80 over 40. Respiratory rate 40. Sats 80%. Pinpoint pupils, diaphoretic. Vomit at the mouth, like old yeller. Get the gun, Paul. Gotta put her down. <laughs> Coarse breath sounds. Um, Bowel sounds are active, lots of diarrhea. So what's the syndrome here? Cholinergic, right? So what are things that give you cholinergic syndrome like that? Benadryl's anticholinergic, yeah, Benadryl's anticholinergic. Organophosphates, pesticides, absolutely. Kids limp and listless. Um, IV started, weights 15 kilos. We did the most likely poison. So this kid's respiratory distress gets worse, has worsening pulmonary edema, and you need to intubate them. Any, can you use any meds you want for your RSI, or is there any contraindications of what you can use? So Tomidate would be fine. What about for neuromuscular blockade? So, we'll talk, let's talk about this in a second. I've actually got another slide that talks about You may not need to intubate the kid. If you get aggressive with your atropine dosing and try and, try and uh, treat the pulmonary edema, you may be able to not do it. In this particular case, we give a lot of atropine to the kid. That's just terrific pulmonary edema. 
we set a really high respiratory stress. And despite maximal oxygenation, couldn't get the sats up, so we just intubated them. There's the blood sugar and the hemoglobin, that's okay. There's the post-intubation chest x-ray, so you can see some edema there. So remember that organophosphates bind and inhibit acetylcholinesterase. And acetylcholinesterase is also what breaks down acetyl, uh, succinylcholine. Remember, succinylcholine is two, acetyl two acetylcholine molecules connected together. And so you'll get prolonged neuromuscular blockade if you use succinylcholine. It's really not contraindicated in the sense that they're not going to have any bad outcome immediately from it, but they can have a prolonged neuromuscular blockade from the succinylcholine because it's not broken down. And so it's probably better to use a non-depolarizing agent to intubate them. So acetylcholinesterase is inhibited. It's the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. It also breaks down and metabolizes succinylcholine. So you get massive increases in your acetylcholine because it's not metabolized. The clinical effects, skeletal muscle weakness, then you get the sludge syndrome, the salivation lacrimation. Basically, every part of your body that makes fluids is turned on. So you have pulmonary edema, vomit at the mouth, diarrhea, vomiting, etc. Your bradycardia, and then lethargy and coma. And then when you titrate your atropine, really what you're titrating to is to dry up the pulmonary secretions. You don't really care what the pupils look like or anything else. The whole point of the atropine is to dry up their pulmonary secretions. 2-PAM administration, it can be given in kids as well. Um, and succinylcholine, as I said, is 2-acetylcholine put together. And then the mom brings the bottle in. It turns out to be di diazinon, which is a mild organic phosphate, but pretty nasty stuff. We think that this kid, that probably the reason he got such persistent pulmonary edema is because the father induced vomiting. And these are hydrocarbons. You know, they're in a hydrocarbon base. And so he probably got some hydrocarbon aspiration in the because he had to stand on a ventilator for like three days despite all of his secretions being dried out. And that was with the reason for the yards there. <clears throat> all right, so case number six, another weakness. You know, the weakness thing is common. You're gonna see that it's gonna be the bane of your existence in the emergency department. You know, another chart, oh, I'm weak. How long have you been weak? Oh, months, doctor. It's just, and it's worse today. So a 38-year-old man with weakness, he has a history of myasthenia gravis. Said he's been feeling weak and he's been taking extra mestin on. Here's his vital sign. He's got a heart rate of 44. I'm sorry, respiratory rate of 44. Sats 98%, pulse 100, blood pressure 120 over 70. Got a lot of secretions. Chest extractions on left lower lobe pneumonia. So, people with myasthenia can have trouble swallowing or increased risk for aspiration. You got to um, take care of this guy for pneumonia. Myasthenia, a lot of these neuromuscular conditions, just like all the endocrine conditions, are exacerbated by infections. So if you have thyroid problems or diabetes and you get pneumonia, you know, your everything goes out of whack. And if you have MS or you have mycenia gravis, if you get sick with anything, there's extra stress on the body, and so you tend to get exacerbations of these diseases. What is myasthenia gravis? Remember, you get antibodies to your acetylcholine receptors. And in a myasthenic crisis, you get weakness, drooling, double vision, you get ptosis or drooping of your eyelids, respiratory distress. But then, uh, and the treatment for that is cholinesterase inhibitors, which are mesinon or tensilon. Tensilon is an IV form. Tensilon is, should be only used as a diagnostic agent. You don't use it to treat somebody. The big dilemma when someone comes in sick is that they have a cholinergic crisis or myasthenic crisis, and it's very difficult to distinguish the two. 
the cholinergic crisis, there's excess acetylcholine at the receptors. It's the same. Um, you get the weakness, drooling, respiratory distress. So it can be very difficult to, to tell the difference. So if you have someone that comes in as myasthenia, that's having respiratory distress, you know, they got a pneumonia or whatever, you know, don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out which one it is. Secure their airway. Once you get past that, uh, you can move on and get them admitted and the neurologist can deal with it. The only thing that they're... crisis the same organophosphate poisoning. Cholinergic crisis is organophosphate poisoning. It's basically the same clinical presentation. <laughs> so what about airway management issues? Um, you can use your meds. Some people will say don't use succinylcholine because your acetylcholine metabolism is all screwed up. You're given, they've got all these other meds on board. It's probably fine. These people that go on a ventilator, they're going to be on a vent for a while. If you have somebody that has underlying weakness, you've got to treat their pneumonia, get them better for that, and then try and wean them off the ventilator. So someone that's got a bad uh, flare for their myosin with pneumonia ends up with a ventilator, is going to be able to get him for a while. Trying to differentiate between a cholinergic and a myosinic crisis can be difficult. Tensilon is only used as a diagnostic agent, which has been beaten into our heads for years. Um, don't try and give it, and the person gets better and say, oh, I think it's this, because you're not always going to be right. Yeah, and in our setting, you know, the neurologists would do it, and there's a question about what they should do in the ED or in the ICU. Right. Apparently, it takes significant experience to look at the response and determine whether it's cholinergic or myasthenic uh, crisis, right. and so it's not something that we're going to have that information in either will the neurology resident That's even another reason that emergency physicians should not be given it because you can't have it. They probably won't because it's not used in my state. Right. So it may not be available in the United States. Right. Right. So that's a neurology thing. Yeah. That's a neurology thing. You're not going to be using it. Good point. You can't use tensile on myasthenics anymore. You don't even have the drugs to kill prisoners anymore. It's just all the drugs shortages. Although, you know, they complain about this thing about that it's inhumane that they can't get IVs on prisoners. and. They got the easy I.O. now. You just get it right in the arm. <laughs> okay, give them the medicine. Um, so what's a quick way to evaluate this patient's respiratory status? I mean, you could do the dreaded ABG, but you know, we don't like to use those in the emergency department. So what else could you do to evaluate this person? Is that respiratory? Can I do it? Yeah. You can do it. And uh, capacity. You know, you might be able to get formal pulmonary functions, but you can get a quick peak flow, you know, and they're not going to be able to do Deadly on the peak flow because you know they're going to be able to make it go on. You know, again, this is a clinical thing. Evaluating somebody's airway is a clinical judgment. You should not be getting blood gases to decide if you need to intubate a patient. You should be able to look at them and clinically make a decision based on their mental status and you know, respiratory effort, etc. What about doing BiPAP versus intratracheal intubation? The problem with BiPAP is that these um, patients, because they have a lot of bulbar weakness or aspirators. 
And so uh, this is this is uh, where you want to use the, the high-low endotracheal tube, you know, where there's a suction port above the balloon. So there's endotracheal tubes now that have a suction, a separate suction port to get the secretions, supposedly decreases the risk of aspiration among young people on ventilators, so that you can suction those secretions out. So really BiPAP is not something, other than if you're using it as a temporizing measure to get set up for your intubation. All right, number seven, seizures. A uh, 27-year-old woman who's post-dictal was brought into the emergency department. She had a seizure that lasted 10 minutes. She's 32 weeks pregnant. She has a history of preeclampsia and epilepsy. <laughs> okay? She's on Phenobar. So now we now our job nicely with the dilemma is we've got to figure out is this a clamptic seizure or is this just a regular epileptic seizure? <clears throat> so here's your vital signs. Blood pressure is 160 over 100, pulse 110, temperature is 37.1. Postectal, can't give you any history. You notice all these cases, people are nonverbal, you can't get any history, so you're forced to, like, to make decisions. Not taking history. So, what could you do on physical exam to sort of differentiate between eclampsia and someone that had just a regular epileptic seizure, like in this particular case? So, vital signs are one thing. So, your blood pressure goes up when you have eclampsia, right? A lot of people that just had a seizure, their blood pressure's up too. So, what else could you do? UA protein. So, you could do a UA for protein, but that's not really a physical exam maneuver, but that's a real good thought. Reflexes, absolutely. So remember, people get preeclamptic; they get really hyperreflexic. I mean, you literally just push on their foot, and they get the they get a clonus going. And so, just two quick reflexes. You know, you don't even need a reflex hammer. Use your stethoscope or your finger, or just take their foot and just push them on the foot. And if they've had an eclamptic seizure, they're going to get the they're going to get the clonus. You're going to the answer. Where if someone who's just an epileptic seizure, you're not going to see that. Um, so remember. Um, Typically with preeclampsia and eclampsia, they're not seen until after 20 weeks, so you're not going to see preeclampsia in somebody that comes with vaginal bleeding that's seven weeks pregnant. By definition, they're supposed to be more than 20 weeks, and those people go straight to LMD as well, and so we don't see as much of this, and so it's easy to get rusty on the management of these uh, patients. Hypertension, edema, proteinuria, defined as a blood pressure greater than 140 over 90 or an increase of 30 over 15 during pregnancy. You get hypertension, edema, hyperreflexia, proteinuria, and help center thing that's always worrisome is that when you have a woman that has a seizure that's a clamp because they have a brain hemorrhage, you know, they can get the, the HELP syndrome where they get um, hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets, that's what HELP stands for. So you have somebody that has thrombocytopenia, you know, low platelets, and their blood pressure is high, um, if they get a hemorrhage, it can be really devastating. And uh, eclampsia is where you have seizures, so fetal mortality for eclampsia is between 15 and 30 <coughs> percent. So clues in this patient, blood pressure, ankle reflexes, she has four beats of Kelowna. She's edematous, protein in the urine, like Randy said, and then her blood sugar is okay. So now what do you want to do to treat her clamsia? We want to get her to L&D as quickly as possible. But yeah. <laughs> you just say it's going to be 10 more minutes, just like the oral board, 10 more, to, 10 more minutes till the, till the transport team gets here, doctor. What else would you like to do? What's that? Mag. I thought you said medicine cuts. <laughs> <laughs> magnesium, yeah, okay, so you get magnesium. Now how much magnesium do you give them? Four grams. Six. So you get four grams, excellent, excellent. Four grams, slow IV push, and then two grams per hour. Um, if they're actively seized, you can use benzos. Remember, benzos are not supposed to be given during pregnancy, but you can use them for the treatment of seizures because the risk of having prolonged seizure and damage to 
mom and baby, et cetera, outweighs the risk of it. In terms of hypertension, lobetalol, or hydralazine, lobetalol would be my choice only because we use it all the time. You've got it in the emergency department. Hydralazine, I'd have to look up the dose and I'd be worried about giving it, et cetera. Lobetalol is a fine choice. And they get the kid out. That's the next step. If they get to eclampsia, they need to be delivered. What about um, like the steroids for low maturity? That. I mean that's like an OBGYN thing, but yeah, that's a good point. You know, if they're if they're early in the you know if they're not very far along in their pregnancy, so you got a 32 weeker, you know, I guess steroids could be there. That'd be something I would probably talk to the OB about. It would be something routine to give in this kind of a situation. It's a good thought. You have to keep the baby in for like 24 hours. Yeah. The steroids could work, so it's kind of pointless. At least six to eight hours by 24 hours. Right. So all you're going to do is so let's get a wound infection when they do the C-section. You give them a bunch of steroids. <laughs> All right, so next is a pediatric GI bleed. So a three-year-old male comes in. He had a gastroenteritis this morning. Better at lunchtime. Now vomiting blood with bloody diarrhea. So this is like a boards question right here. It's like on your written boards. It's like all the information you get. So what's the most likely diagnosis? There's a family history of hemophilia. Oh no, this is really complicated. <laughs> and he's three, so he's not really verbal, and he's scared of the doctor. He's not going to tell you anything. And the mom doesn't know anything, you know. Um, so you have a three-year-old male, and the mom, you ask her, says, "Has Johnny been tested for hemophilia?" And she says, "You know, I don't think so, doctor." So what things could you, what clues could you get whether this child might have hemophilia? Easy bruising and bleeding. And that's what they were circumcised. Nervous look. The kid was circumcised and he didn't have excessive bleeding, he doesn't have hemophilia. That's like Any a other males What's that? Any other family There's a family history of hemophilia, yeah. So this child was circumcised and not have any bleeding problems. <coughs> what's that? How often is a family gonna know that? You just have to look, you know, pull down the diaper and say, yeah, okay, he's been circumcised, so his chance of having a hemophilia is going to be a lot. Bled or not oh, if they bled or not? I mean, when you talk about bleeding after, if you have a hemophiliac, you circumcise, they're going to bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed, and it's just going to keep oozing and bleeding for a long time. Parents right. will be told that? Oh, yeah. They'll know. Because they bring them back to the ER. So if you see a kid <laughs> that has excessive bleeding after they're circumcised and their parents bring them to the ER, you want to do pillows and a PTT on them. It'll be prolonged. You gotta check a plate, I can't on other things, but um, in hemophilia, the PTT would be prolonged. So, differential diagnosis kid is vascular problems, ulcer gastritis, malarylice tear, kind of toxicological stuff. Right? Iron. Hematological problems, so like if he was a hemophiliac, for example, sepsis. So, here's the vital signs so, blood pressure 70. Remember, 70 is as low as you want it to be, and then it starts getting higher from being a newborn. So this kid's blood pressure should be at least 76. 76 is the minimum it should be. So the age divided by 2 plus 70, right? Age times 2. Age times 2. Yeah. 2 millimeters of mercury for every year plus 70. Right, so a 3-year-old, so 2 times 3 is 6 plus 70. So 76 should be the minimum. Normal is so, like 86. So if you right. want to look at normals, it's 80 plus. Yeah, that's the low. <coughs> So tachycardic, uh, blood sugar is 305. 
she gets a fluid bolus and the blood pressure comes up to 110 over 70. Put an NG tube down, the child's not actively bleeding. The PT and PTT are normal. White count's 18,000, hematocrit's 30. Platelets are normal. So probably not some sort of a uh, coagulopathy is the cause for this. Get a KUB of the kid. What do you think, gallstones? Hereditary oh. spherocytosis? No. So what is that? Iron pills. So what are the things that show up on an x-ray? What kind of pills do you guys know? There's a good little, well, Mark knows all, but Mark knows everything. But <laughs> so there's a mnemonic called eight chips, right? Nice. Arsenic, Tums or Theophylline, Terracotta tablets, chlorohydrate, heavy metals, iron, phantizines, salicylates. So those things, those are the tablets. Iron, in this particular case. So if you go back and look at the kids, let's go back for a second here. So you look at this right now, let's go to the hemophilia <laughs> thing, I just threw that in and mess you guys up. So gastroenteritis this morning, better, and now vomiting, bloody, and diarrhea. Those are like the phases of iron poisoning. Sick at first, and you have an asymptomatic period, and then you really crump later on. And that's kind of what happened here. So there's our eight chips there. So remember that in, there's the, these stages, there's actually five stages of iron poisoning. It's, stage one is the GI phase, basically gastroenteritis. It's a direct irritant to the stomach, it's a vomiting. Um, you can also see, and remember the elevated glucose and the white count. Then stage two is the asymptomatic phase, and the iron's been absorbed, and it hasn't done all the systemic toxicity yet. Then stage three is the cellular damage, where the iron moves intracellular and starts doing damage, and that's when you get acidosis third spacing, and then start going into end organ failure. And then stage four is hepatic phase, you get liver damage. And then stage five is so corrosive, you can actually get scarring on like the sections of the duodenum, you get strictures there, and have problems with feeding and growth So diagnostic pitfalls, uh, it takes a while for the iron levels to peak, and so just like a semen infant's got the four-hour level iron, it's a six-hour level. Toxic levels are usually more than 500. Treatment, whole bowel irrigation is a mainstay of therapy. What about activated charcoal? Would you give, would you give a dose of charcoal? Not gonna work. Anything that's, an, that's elemental, like a lithium, or it's extremely small, like ethanol, those that absorb it, um, so it would not be helpful. And then the dose of polyethylene glycol, or go lightly, is 25 cc's per kilogram per hour. Put an NG tube and start flushing it out, try and push all those pills through so they're pooping out the iron pills. And then lastly, deferoxamine. That's a lecture in and of itself about how to deal with iron poisoning. So you the highlights there, put them in a piece I see All right, another weakness case. It's a recurring theme. These weakness cases will kill you because some of them are serious and some aren't. So, a 74 year old man calls 911 for weakness. He vomited blood in front of the paramedics. They said the estimated blood loss 200 cc's. Now, USC did a great study years ago asking people to estimate blood loss. They would take like just a vacutainer of blood and pour it on the floor and then ask someone, hey, someone just got shot, how much blood do you think that is? People would just, I mean, it's crazy because, you know, if you pour it on a tile floor, that blood runs out and makes a big pool, you know, and they'll say, oh, yeah, it's a 200 cc's of blood, Doc. You know, it might be five cc's of blood. So 
people are notoriously inaccurate. So, you know, when the paramedics give you these estimated blood loss things in the field, just kind of take a grain of salt and just look at the patient and what they look like. They may tell you they lost two liters of blood, and if they have normal vital signs, it's pretty unlikely they lost two liters of blood. So he's hypotensive and tachycardic, pale and diaphoretic. So he's got a pretty, he's a pretty sick J, I believe. Patient denies alcoholism. He takes aspirin and Aricept. So this is probably the culprit right here, right? Aspirin. Past medical history, otherwise none. Um, after a liter of normal saline, his blood pressure is 90 over 40. Heart rate's 100. AccuCheck 104. Bedside hemoglobin 5.1. Got pretty serious anemia. Two units of type O blood are ordered. So. Can you give this guy O positive blood, or does he need O negative blood, or should you wait for the type and screen and give blood? Doesn't matter in a guy. Yeah. You can give O positive or O or O negative. O negative is important for women that are still going to have children. Old, yeah. <coughs> so an older guy, yes, yeah, so you can give O positive. So an older woman, you can give O positive too. Right. We're not going to have more kids, yeah. Unless it's like those women that coded a cause that have kids in their 50s. See, that's weird, you know. They, they spend like. $150,000 for infertility, and then they come in with vaginal bleeding, and they want like four consults in the ER. You know, they see endocrinologists, and then they get like a reproductive specialist, and <laughs> they do an ultrasound, and you don't see anything. And then they, you know, they spend so much money, and they're so terrified about losing their pregnancy that they demand your doctor come in and see them. All right. So, a GI bleed workup, kind of full battery of labs, CBC electrolytes, coags, type and cross, and then he gets a 12 lead EKG. And here's a 12 lead right here. What do you think? <laughs> so we've got a big anterior myocardial infarction with reciprocal inferior changes there. These are the tombstones, right? You know what happens when you see tombstones? You see death. So he has ventricular fibrillation. So he's shocked three times, gets a dose of vasopressin, intubated, goes back into a normal sinus rhythm. It's 150 VAM iodorone. NG tubes placed, just shows coffee grounds, but no active bleeding. Rectal exam's got melanotic stool. Now what do you do? How do you treat an acute MI with someone that's got a GI bleed that probably precipitated it? Give them blood and oxygen. So transfuse, 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 oxygen. You can't give them aspirin, right, because they're bleeding. You can't give them heparin because they're bleeding. You can't give them nitrates until they're resuscitated because it'll make them hypotensive. You can't go to the cath lab, and they can't get thrombolytic therapy. So you're basically stuck with oxygen and blood. You want to try and get their blood count up as quick as you can to maximize oxygen delivery to the heart. You could. The problem is, is that they like to use Integralin when they do angioplasties and stents. They don't like doing um, uh, invasive procedures with an angioplasty without any anticoagulation because their closure rate is so high. They definitely don't like to deploy stents without it. You could do just a plain old angioplasty to try and buy time. Most of our cardiologists are not interested in doing that. More general people that come in with an MI with a jab bleed usually say into medicine, control the bleeding, <laughs> and then call me later. I mean, they'll come in and see the patient and make recommendations. But, you know, like, and the other thing we use in MIs and attack particles is use what beta blockers, well, you know, you got to be careful of that as well. I have a silly question about that. Yeah. So the guy's having a STEMI. Mm -hmm. Does that go against your uh, your, your Medicare uh, door to balloon time? Because he's diagnosed with STEMI, but he's never getting a balloon. 
No, if someone has a STEMI and they, they're not a candidate for heart catheterization, so their DNR, or they have a coagulopathy, or they have some other condition that would prohibit them from doing that, from getting a heart cath, let's say they've got renal disease, whatever, for whatever reason, if they don't actually go to the cath lab, the times don't count. And if they die in the cath lab, those times don't count either, so those patients are excluded. So if it's 91 minutes, you just let them expire. Oh, let them die. Yeah. <laughs> We're sorry. We're sorry, Mrs. Smith. We're going to stop excusing you now. You can thank Obamacare for this one. I missed your 90 minute window. Yeah. We didn't have to wait for the elevator. So, this is a lady that came in that was a pocket shooter. So, pocket shooters are people that shoot dope in their neck because they've run out of veins everywhere else. And she was stoned on heroin and stuck herself in the eye and ended up having <laughs> MRSA endophthalmitis. <clears throat> it's not a good thing to have. And does not have a good prognosis. All right, so lastly, and this is just a fun case, but it's a real case. So a 45-year-old homeless man brought in after being found on the sidewalk. He has no complaints, but his speech was a little slurred, and they did his blood sugar, and it was 57, and so they sent him to the emergency department. He was given oral glucose, blood sugar normalized, speech is normal. The guy says, yeah, yeah, I'm diabetic. Taking my pills. Didn't take my, didn't have breakfast this morning. And so he requests a meal, and he gets a diabetic meal, and the patient asks for some ice chips for his orange juice. All of his labs are normal. He gets an alcohol level at zero. The patient's observed in the emergency department. One hour later, he's unresponsive, completely comatose in the ER. And his repeat blood sugar is 151. He's given two milligrams of Narcan with no response. Labs are repeated. Gets a head CT, what's normal. All his labs are normal, except his alcohol level is 461. So this guy got a liquor. That's why he wanted the ice chips with his orange juice, right? So the patient's belongings and the room are searched, and there's no bottle found. They don't find an empty bottle of Bacardi or anything. So where the hell did he get the liquor? So this is from the Purell website, Purell.com. Purell contains 65% ethyl alcohol with a special blend of moisturizers and a convenient one liter dispenser. And I'm sure this guy found this very convenient. One liter dispenser. Yeah. I'm wondering why all of our dispensers are <laughs> So how hammered can you get on a liter of Purell? <laughs> So, wow. oh my God. 50 beers. <laughs> what? This is 65% ethanol. It's 130 proof. The Bacardi 151 is 151 proof, right? Six bottles of wine. Two bottles of Kettle One. 1.6 liters. Or a bottle of 151. That's how hammered you get off Purell. You drink a container of Purell. So you can have Purell and Red Bull, right? Fire and ice. Nice. You can have a Purell Atini shaking that stirred. Or you can have Purell and Fleet Cinema clean and fresh. Nice. <laughs> All right, so take home messages. Retrieval order dissection. Think about that as someone that comes with a posterior circulation stroke. Consider impaired bicarb and young cardiac arrest victims. Toxins are high, a lidocaine after surgery. Void sucks in my gravis patients. Remember the endpoint of atropine or organophosphates is drying of the pulmonary secretions. That's it.